This morning's reading is from the Revelation, chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. You can find that on page uh, 1,206 in your pew Bibles. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Several years ago, we uh, went through Revelation uh, in our Bible study. And then when that was uh, wrapped up, we came in here in the sanctuary. We had uh, sang a couple of hymns and uh, had communion. And then we read, uh, I read the entire uh, book of Revelation as part of the worship service. And that was held on a Sunday evening, I think, uh, for those who were part of that Bible study. Um, you just went through it quite meticulously, actually, and uh, tried to understand uh, what the bizarre language is all about and what these images are and, and things like that. Um, and it was very gratifying, actually, uh, because a lot of people are afraid of the book of Revelation uh, because it is used in really rough ways of, you know, kind of working toward the destruction of this world. Uh, when in fact uh, the whole book of Revelation has to do with life on this earth and not some happy world beyond this world. Uh, even though people predict the end of the world based on this, uh, on this book, um, they've been predicting the demise of the world uh, probably for almost 2,000 years. And so you would think uh, that Christians uh, who are still looking for the second coming uh, would have gotten wind of the fact uh, that, that a lot of time has gone by. And I think uh, a lot of the early Christians, uh, following the Apostle Paul and others as well, would have been very, very discouraged uh, if we, here we are 2,000 years later, uh, still talking about Jesus and the world has not been transformed in the way that it suggests in the book of Revelation. By the way, if you want to be smart uh, during a cocktail party or a dinner uh, and somebody says the word revelations, as in plural, uh, you can correct them if you want and say, no, it's revelation. 
No plural on the end. I doubt if your friends would appreciate hearing that, though. <laughs> it is the revelation to John. That's the full title of, uh, of the book. Um, I'm going to kind of set it up a little bit differently. Um, in, our mor in our Tuesday morning Bible studies, we've been going through uh, the book of Exodus. And um, there is um, a lot of power uh, in that book. And we're understanding how the power of empire works and uh, how Yahweh God uh, works as well. And uh, right now we're in the, in, the, in the place where the people are already out in the desert uh, wondering uh, if they are going to live or not. And that's the big question for them. Um, but in many ways, uh, Revelation has a very similar um, message. Uh, and that is the idea uh, that uh, the empire is highly corrupt uh, and what's God going to do about it? That was, that's kind of the question. Uh, how, do we, how do we seek freedom in this life and what does freedom even look like in this life? And so um, this is all apocalyptic language uh, which is a, its own particular type of communication in the Bible uh, and there are other places where apocalyptic language is used uh, for example, in Ezekiel uh, and other places as well. And there are little apocalyptic uh, chapters in, in the Gospels as well. So we have to understand that this kind of language is not meant to be taken literally. And that would solve the problem of those who are counting, <laughs> counting on God to come back any moment now. Um, uh, it's a specialized language. It's highly coded uh, so that these early Christians can kind of rail against the, the empire without the empire knowing what they were talking about. So this is kind of like a dog whistle kind of a, a message in the apocalyptic language. Um, really does suggest uh, that Yahweh is going to act against the empire. And a lot of the imagery here in uh, the book of, of Revelation uh, uh, has to do with end times uh, with Yahweh finally winning at the end. Um, in fact, what we're going to be looking at today um, is what, what does it mean to win? Now, we've heard that word a lot throughout the past year and a half, what, it's, what it takes to win, um, and uh, winning big. And so, and we can all relate to that type of winning. You know, we can go to a... a a casino and you know hit the right <laughs> hit the right numbers and you know we uh, we win uh, or we play all of these games or we watch football or a lot of our lives are about winning and uh, so here in the revelation uh, is another way uh, that is suggested how we might win and so uh, we will end up uh, making the same statement that we've made here before and that is uh, the difference between victory or winning uh, through, uh, through conquering or victory. Peace through victory. And then the alternative here in the Bible <clears throat> that we're going to look at is, <clears throat> excuse me, it's going to be peace through justice. And uh, that's why the Bible is so uh, firm uh, about the issue of justice because they they're very clear on this, uh, that if the empire, all the empire does is take. Take, 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 take. That's the operative word. And it doesn't matter how many 
promises you make. It doesn't matter who is in charge of the empire. It's just the nature of the beast. Uh, and of course, that word is used <laughs> in this book of Revelation, the beast. Uh, it's the way uh, empires work, and we do not have to buy into their value system without being offered another way to live in it. And so that's what's involved here today. Uh, the uh, chapters four and five um, are really the heart of the book of Revelation, um, because after this, um, then it kind of, it's like, kind of like the plagues in, in the book of, of Exodus. Uh, you know, things play out, uh, and they all start here in chapter four and five, and usually, um, probably now, there are many, many people, uh, pastors, uh, talking about uh, John the Baptist uh, this morning. Uh, that is the usual text that is given for the second uh, Sunday in Advent, and I have preached on it I don't know how many times, and I'm kind of tired of preaching about John the Baptist. So I chose this uh, text this morning, though, because uh, it w might help us in thinking about the world that we're living in and what's going on. And so, uh, and you might notice, too, and I'm just going to read a little bit uh, uh, from the chapter before chapter 5, which, uh, which was just read. At the very beginning um, of uh, chapter 4, um, after the messages came to these various churches, uh, after this, I, meaning John, uh, I, after this, I looked, and there in heaven a door stood open. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what may, must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and there in heaven stood a throne with one seated on the throne. And the one seated there looks like all these gems, everything that is treasured and valuable in this life is used to describe the one that's sitting on the throne. And of course, uh, God is sitting on the throne. Uh, but the first Jews didn't want to use the uh, name Yahweh. It's a sacred name. And so they had different ways of referring to, to God as like one sitting on the throne. Um, and they attribute to this one sitting on the throne all power and all value. And, uh, the, and so we're kind of in the throne room of God. Um, and a way that I look at it is a little bit like Star Trek, you know, when Captain Kirk is on the bridge, you know, and he's got all these people that help him out uh, here and there. Um, but the captain is the captain. And no matter what happens, uh, it's always uh, the captain who is in charge. In fact, um, when, a, uh, when a ship is out to sea or, or whatever, uh, the captain uh, maintains the rule of order. And what the captain says is the law. And so uh, I think that's a nice imagery. Um, here we have John taken up to what he calls heaven. We don't know what that means. And there he looked, and there was this, this one on the throne. This is political language. Who else would be sitting on a throne 
And what would a throne mean to us? Um, I don't know, does uh, Queen Elizabeth have a throne that she sits on? Probably somewhere, but we certainly know through history that the throne is the seat of power. For whatever country or uh, whatever empire, uh, the throne is the seat of power. And I, I wish I'd looked this up. I think that is in the Vatican too, where they do have a seat um, uh, where the Pope sits. And it's like, what's it? What's, yes, um, and the Pope sits there. And, and what, uh, the Pope is like Captain Kirk, I guess. Uh, he, you know, he lays down the law for the Catholic Church. And I don't want to mean to diminish any of this by referring to things that we're familiar with because it helps us to think about these things. And so uh, the rest of chapter 4 goes on in uh, praising um, and hallelujah and singing and making statements about how Yahweh, the one sitting on the throne, is the most powerful being in the world. And of course, this is a direct attack uh, on the Roman Empire. Uh, one thing that you might know if you've been uh, reading uh, books about the Bible is that a lot of the language that was applied to Jesus, like uh, God Almighty or Son of God or, you know, all these, you know, those were originally meant to attribute, be attributed to the Caesar. And uh, Domitian, one of the Caesars, insisted uh, that everyone call him son of God. And that makes a difference uh, when we take a look at the Gospels now, when a lot of these titles and a lot of this language now is focused on Jesus, and this is a direct critique of the empire. Uh, This is subversive, Uh, it's a threat to the empire, um, because uh, it threatens the power of the empire. Uh, to say what the rule rules are. And so we get a lot of that, polit- and this is a political document, uh, and it has to do uh, with critiquing whatever empire we live in or not. That's, it's about critiquing the powers that be and, and how if we attribute those ultimate titles to the Caesar, then what about God? And so there's a lot of language in here that there is only one that can receive all these attributes, and it is God. And uh, Jesus, of course, being the Son of God or the, uh, the measure of God or the image of God, those same titles would apply to him as well, Jesus Christ. And so we have a very political document here. And uh, it's enshrined in such weird language that a lot of people just stay away from it. They get bogged down in all these messages to the various churches and they never get to this part in chapter, chapters 4 and 5. One of the things that first church insisted on uh, for the first Christians is that they do not use that kind of language for the emperor. In fact, that's one of the really bad things you can do as a Christian is to attribute ultimate value to the Caesar and not to God. And so the critique here, the challenge uh, is that God is the creator, not Caesar. God is the one who's in control and not Caesar. 
So um, if you read through the Gospels, for example, um, you can just kind of put those words in your mind when it says, you know, uh, you know, uh, Jesus um, is the Son of God. And in your mind you could say, but not Caesar. That finishes the sentence. People back then would know that. Um, you know, uh, uh, Pilate, you know, is, is a great, you know, representation of God somehow. And you can read into that. Jesus uh, shows the power of God and not Caesar's power. So we're kind of set up to complete those uh, sentences we go through this. Now the text that was read uh, this morning is one of those tricky things that if you're trying to read the book of Revelation, you're just going to kind of gloss over it. Uh, but here is the very heart, I think, of not only of the book of Revelation, but I think the heart of Christianity as well. And it's worth looking at and taking seriously uh, because it helps us to think about how, how we should relate to you know, the powers that be in the world. And I'm going to read just part of that again. Um, and so uh, John is still in the throne room of God. And, um, and there is something about a scroll uh, that is supposed to divulge what's going to happen in the future. Uh, John says in chapter 5, verse 1, Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And you can just insert the phrase, not Caesar. And no one in heaven or on earth, not, not even Caesar, or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or to look into it. John says, I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of David, the Judah, the root of David has, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, I'm just going to pause there for just a minute to um, affirm uh, what it meant uh, to open the scroll and the fact that no one worthy could, was, was powerful enough to open the scroll. And John was in tears because he thought there would be no future then. Uh, but somebody said, oh, don't worry. You know, we've got a Messiah, King David. Uh, he's, he's the lion. And that's the symbol of... Uh, King David, if you go to Jerusalem today and if you stay at the King David Hotel, uh, there are pictures of lions around because King David was seen as a lion. And, uh, of course, this is looking back. Uh, those were the heydays, the golden years uh, of, uh, of Israel uh, as they had their own little empire going with King David. Um, and we all know how that turned out. That didn't turn out very well at all. So... Um, there's this reference to King David. No, don't worry, you know. And so it's kind of embedded in that, in that sense of King David being a lion meant uh, being able to conquer or overwhelm or kill anybody. Any threat that comes your way, you can meet it with that kind of power. 
And of course, we look at uh, all of these stories of empire, and it's always coercive power that they use. Um, and so here, uh, very, very happy. And so uh, the text goes on, and we're going to linger on that for just a minute because this is it right here in verse 6. Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered, uh, having seven horns and seven eyes, which were the seven spirits of God. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated in the throne. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed God, for, for God, saints from every tribe and lineage, and, and so on. I, I, I hope you get a sense of the, the shift uh, in the language here in this book. Um, because what it does, and this is very dramatic, you know, if you're going to read this uh, before a congregation, you, know, you, could, you could put it on a stage um, because everybody is, you know, enthralled with whoever is sitting on the throne, um, and that's the highest of value, uh, and that, that one sitting on the throne had a scroll, uh, but nobody was uh, worthy to open it up. And and when you say nobody is worthy to open it up, not even Caesar, not even King David. See, that's the, that's the important piece here. Nobody's was wor nobody was worthy of opening the scroll, not even King David. And then, you know, there's a, you know, the drums kind of rattle a little bit and the curtain comes by and, you know, and there's the lamb. You talk about, uh, paradigm shifts. Uh, this is a paradigm shift about the kind of power that God has. Uh, it's about the kind of power that Jesus has. That's the kind of power that Christ has. And it's a different kind of power. We understand the lion. We, we get that. We have armies. Uh, we have enemies. Uh, we have things to conquer. Uh, and we, we try mightily to have peace through victory. And that is always a hollow promise. Uh, it's the promise that we hear from whoever is in charge of any world. Um, and it is coercive power, and that is really what the difference is going to be uh, between uh, the lion and the lamb. Uh, the lion represents coercive power, and the lamb, of course, uh, uh, represents uh, persuasive power, the power of love, you might say. So um, what I would like to have out on the uh, sign, uh, message sign, is the phrase, um, make love great again. Make love great again. You see, that is the opposite of what is being promised to us every single day. Make Love, yeah, 
Um, and the fact that uh, the sacrificial thing happened kind of feeds into this um, idea of uh, atonement and ransom and all that kind of stuff that we're used to hearing uh, if you grew up in a church. It's got very little to do with how this has been interpreted to us through the years. Um, because the important issue, and this is what you can take home today, and that is the, the paradigm shift is to turn our attention from uh, the power of coercion, which the world knows so well, and the power of love, persuasion, persuasive love as the alternative. Now that was the, that was the mission of the early church. You know, we know how to live this one with the lion, but what does it look like to, to create a community uh, that is based on uh, persuasive love and not coercive? And then they break out into a song. And these songs, they mean so many things. Uh, they are joyous about what has just happened. There are songs uh, after Moses was born. There are songs after Miriam. And there are songs after Hannah. There are songs after Mary uh, gave birth to Jesus. All of these songs, uh, they put into poetry, actually, the power of what has been witnessed. And that's a way of marking the importance of that moment. And all of these songs are really theological. I mean, they're, they're the most theological aspect of any of these stories is the songs. So, for example, if you would look back at the psalm, a song of Mary, uh, it's highly theological and it's highly critical of the empire. Um, and so here we have this song. Uh, that's why I think music uh, is so important uh, to express ourselves in a joyous way that we have found another way to live in this world. There is another way to live in this world. And it doesn't have to be the way of the empire. And that's why we gather here Sunday after Sunday trying to envision an alternative to the way the world has been presented to us all along. So um, we are God's representatives here. Um, we are, as Paul said, we are ambassadors. Uh, we are representatives from another way of life. And so uh, a church, um, I think, uh, who wrestles with these issues uh, uh, can become um, uh, critical of the empire. Uh, now, it's in, the, it's in the empire's best interest always is to co-opt religion so that it would support whatever view uh, those in the power have. And, of course, we see that today more and more and more. So, my friends, I mean, here we are, a little church in a small town in Southern California. I mean, what could, could, what could we do? And uh, you could probably ask the same questions about Jesus. He was probably born in Nazareth, probably. That's a little hick town. A little hick town. He didn't have important parents. He didn't come from a position of privilege or, or power. He came from almost nothing. And here we are, small, trying to understand how to be together in a way that embodies a different value than the value of the world. 
So after, after all, here we are seeking for uh, um, peace through justice. Does that make sense to you? All of this? I hope so. Because that is the main heart of the gospel. This paradigm shift between coercive power and persuasive power. And if you're interested in how that switch happens, come to the process theology class. We have fun with that. All right, folks. Uh, let us all uh, bow our heads for a word of prayer. Loving God, we gather here uh, on Sundays at this appointed time and hour uh, to be together and uh, to get to know each other in such a way uh, that we can embody a different way of living in this world uh, that is uh, opposite from all the promises that we hear. What you promise, loving God, is, is peace through justice. You bless those who, who work toward peace. We also pray for those who work toward peace through victory. Our prayer is that their minds and hearts might be changed, might know that violence is never an answer to create peace. And so, loving God, we want to embody uh, these values that we find in the Bible and the life of Jesus and what God did through Jesus and God as creator and transformer. And so, loving God, we um, have so many things on our thoughts and our prayers. And let us now pray together that prayer that has prayed all over the world over a long period of time, that prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.